The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Good evening, Tom. Tonight we will continue our treatment of the questions from the recent retreats which Father Jenkins gave. And we'll start, Father, with a question concerning the Divine Mercy Chaplet. So the questioner here asks if we can pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet. I believe I've heard before that the Novus Ordo uses this chaplet in place of the rosary or regards it as more important than the rosary, and therefore we should avoid it. Could we pray it in addition to our rosary, or is it best to be avoided altogether? I would suggest avoiding it altogether in its current Novus Ordo form because not only do I think it is a uh, being offered as a kind of substitute for the rosary or kind of a rival, for the rosary, but it definitely is a distraction from devotion to the Sacred Heart. Okay. I mean, the, the image itself, uh, to me, speaks volumes that it is it is not something that Catholics should be uh, indulging their time and effort in and their devotion in. I mean, the image of our Lord standing there, uh, kind of doe-eyed, doe-eyed with the, the white robe, and uh, rays of white light and, and red or pink light coming out of his chest. Um, th- this is almost a mockery, that image anyway, a mockery of the image of the, of the Sacred Heart of our Lord, but there's no heart. There's no heart. The, the, the image of the Heart of our Lord is actually the center of our, should be the center of our devotion. That is what the Church traditionally held up before us, even going back to the time of St. Augustine and before him, uh, when we read about... Uh, our Lord's heart being pierced while on the cross, St. John writes about this and gives a very special uh, highlight of it, you might say, in the Gospel. The blood and the water flowing forth, and all of the fathers comment on that. So, um, to substitute that now in in our own modernist day, uh, with a devotion that shows our Lord almost like the the alien in in, in E.T., coming out of the ambulance arisen, right, with rays coming out of his chest, uh, that is just uh, not only suspect, but it is beyond suspect. I, I, I would say this is a very modernist devotion which has taken what the Church has always recognized as a true devotion of the, you know, of the Catholic soul, an, an acknowledgement and a love, uh, a gratitude for the mercy of God, and turning it to serve the modernist purpose of this time, at this day. I mean, after all, you know, talking about the mercy of God is a wonderful thing in itself, but um, it has to be in context of the justice of God. I mean, without, without justice, starting with justice, you can't even define mercy, because the definition of mercy has to reference justice, you know, to begin with. And one thing the modernists do not want to talk about is justice with regard to the sinfulness of mankind. Um, So, uh, again, I think the whole thing is very distorted. 
and is being used and abused by the modernists to further their own modernist ends and form, um, deform the souls of Catholics according to the modernist design. You know, uh, this all fits in very well with you know the idea of Francis being a pope of mercy. You know, uh, well, sure, until you show uh, traditional the traditional faith when he uh, when he's transformed into uh, Mr. Hyde, uh, he's very two-faced. You know, <clears throat> he he is all smiles when it comes to socialists and communists and Marxists. In all rigorism and thunderbolts when it comes to anything traditional, which he denounces as with terms he doesn't even understand, obviously. You know. uh, Neo-Gnosticism and Neo-Pelagianism. I mean, clearly, he doesn't know what these, these things even mean. But he's denounced the traditional Catholic traditional uh, uh, effort, the, the, the traditional faith in, that, in those terms already. Uh, so anyway, uh, this is all part of his wanting to, and the modernists in general, elevating the idea of God's mercy, but unfortunately not in, in harmony with the justice of God, or at one with the justice of God, but as, as though it were somehow in conflict with the justice of God, and, uh, and, and even inimical or, or opposed to God's justice. Uh, that is not the Catholic concept of God, and it's certainly not the Catholic concept of God's mercy. Right. There's another question here which asks if there's any merit at all in praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. So would you say no, that there's no, there's no merit in it? Well, uh, you know, there, there's merit in paying devotion to the, the, the mercy of God. You know? mm -hmm. And uh, if the Divine Mercy Chaplet is something that was just concocted by the modernists, then I would say, don't touch it. If the Divine Mercy Chaplet is actually a traditional devotion of the Church as it is prayed, and goes back before you know before modernist times, so to speak, and has its roots in Catholic tradition, then I would say, well, of course, you know, it'd be fine to pray it. But <clears throat> one would have to avoid the modernist message involved now. Sure. If they have actually uh, hijacked this devotion to serve their modernist purpose. Uh, but there is, at root, a traditional foundation for it. It's the traditional foundation that we have to seek, and the traditional foundation that we're going to use. <clears throat> but insofar as it is tainted by modernism and serves the modernist purpose, that, that should be shunned altogether. Gotcha. Okay. Let's move on then to a question about uh, Fatima here. This questioner writes in and says, How is it possible that Lucy, who saw and spoke with our Blessed Mother, was given the three-part secret by her, would even consider to associate herself with the post-Vatican II popes. I have heard that the latter Lucy might have been an imposter. Mm -hmm. Well, people ask similar questions about Padre Pio. They say, well, Padre Pio must have known, right? Wouldn't he have known that uh, the modernists had taken over and, uh, <clears throat> in the Vatican? And uh, the answer is, well, he, he could well have known. And there are indications he did know. And in fact, uh, there are those close to Padre Pio who, who said he was very well aware of the modernists, that they did in fact take over the Vatican and he wanted nothing to do with them. Uh, the modernists are trying to uh, use the name of Padre Pio to endorse modernism by showing him saying the new mass on a table facing the people and, you know, with the gloves and, and so on. <clears throat> but the fact is, uh, uh, that was not the Novus Ordo. That was still that was in 1968 before the Novus Ordo came out. And uh, but even being forced to face the people was a crucifixion for Padre Pio. You can see that 
the, the anguish on his face. He died shortly thereafter. <clears throat> so, I mean, if they played if they played the audio of that, you would hear that what he's offering is a traditional at mass. But why, they tried to make it appear to be the, the Novus Ordo. Why did he face the people? Uh, they wanted him to do that. They wanted him to do that as some kind of a concession, <clears throat> you know. Um, that's my understanding, anyway, okay? That they're using the, 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 the photo only to give people the, uh, a very false impression, a lie, basically. It's deception. That Padre Pio said the new Mass. He never said the new Mass. He died before that. <clears throat> uh, the new Mass was issued. And uh, also, with, so they, they try to use uh, Lucia also, you know, <clears throat> because they're trying to deal with the prestige and the credibility of these, of these dear souls, these holy souls, uh, to get people to think that they, the modernists, um, are supported by Padre Pio and Lucia. There's a, an interesting theory, and uh, you might even call it more than a theory, that somehow a, uh, an elderly nun uh, was substituted for the true Lucia, and uh, <clears throat> that there was such a contrast in not only the appearance, I mean, there's a certain similarity, but there are also dissimilarities that are very, very telling. <clears throat> Visual similarities from pictures of the latter-day Lucia with the original Lucia, you know. But also, even her comportment, there were people who talked about her, <clears throat> and the, the, the latter-day Lucia acting very silly and very kind of frivolous and... Uh, um, childish, you know, and um, that was not the case of the of, of the real Lucia. That was at Fatima, the same Lucia that came through with the Dorothy and sisters and so on. And so, I, I actually personally believe there's there's a certain amount of of uh, weight to that. Uh, I, I mean, the modernists would not hesitate; yeah. they do not hesitate of fabricating, falsifying anything. When they came out with hand communion, <clears throat> they wanted so much for people to think this is a traditional practice of the church. And they were handing out flyers, uh, quoting uh, what they said was St. Cyril of Jerusalem, <clears throat> uh, talking about hand communion back in the 300s. And uh, when you begin to examine the, the citation they give you, you find out that that was not quoting St. Cyril of Jerusalem in his Mystagogia Catechesis, but this, this latter part of the Mystagogia Catechesis, this, 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 this catechism program that he'd written for, for catechumens who were becoming Catholics, that that part of it was actually composed by his successor in the See of Jerusalem, who was a semi-Aryan heretic. And then we all know that. I mean, everyone knows that. And if you read it in English translation, the whole thing, but they don't give you the whole thing, do they? They cut it off. They just give you this much of it. <clears throat> but if you read what followed that, that little soundbite they gave you, you would know there was something wrong with it. And they knew there was something wrong with it, but they just don't want you to find out. Because then it talks about how you, you, you take the cup you know, with the blood and you wipe the blood on your fingers and you rub it in your eyes and your ears. We know that's not a Catholic practice. It never was a Catholic practice. <clears throat> the Arians introduced that kind of thing. So, um, this is a bald-faced lie. And um, they, the modernists don't even believe in truth, so why do they care, you know? Okay. Um, so, in, in any case, they would not hesitate to, to produce a, 
a, a, a Lucia just for the sake of appearances. I mean, there are such strange things about this whole episode of the latter-day Lucia at Fatima. You know, John Paul II was going to make his last visit to Fatima before he died. And the story came out in public. It was a public story that Lucia, the Lucia of that time, uh, asked to see John Paul II, wanted him to meet her during his last visit. And the story, the answer was, no, I don't have time to meet with you. <laughs> you know, so right away, I mean, there are things that just seem really strange. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so not only would I not put it past the modernists to pull a stunt like that and have some, you know, poor victim soul, but the simple, simple soul uh, being convinced to play this part, but I, I would actually find it to be odd if they didn't do it. If they could do it, I, I would say they'd have every reason to do it. Sure. And uh, I, um, I don't want to um, um, give credence to all of the reports of, you know, because there, there are a number of theories about Paul VI about that and so on. Uh, but in this particular case regarding Lucia, I think it is very credible. Um, the, uh, the site uh, uh, Tradition in Action has some interesting entries on that, as well as on the Third Secret of Fatima also, which are definitely worth looking at and worth, worth knowing. Definitely. Father, we've got a question here about the rosary now. This, this question asks, how and when did the prayer at the end of the rosary come about? The, uh, oh God, his only begotten son, by his life, death, resurrection, that prayer, how did that come about? Yeah, I, I don't really know how that was composed, but it is obviously composed by the church, right? And uh, written now. I mean, we, we do know, for example, the the the, um, the the divine office that the priests, the clergy of the church, pray for Corpus Christi, was composed by Saint Thomas Aquinas. Mm -hmm. But composed doesn't mean he made it up. Composed meaning. He brought it together from sacred scripture and the writings of the fathers, and he just put the pieces together from the um, you know venerable writings of the fathers and the infallible um, uh, the inspired inspired writings of sacred scripture. So it doesn't mean he just made it up. And the same with uh, the orations of the church in her liturgy. You might ask that of any of the orations of the church in her liturgy. You'll notice though this that if you if you, if you find that prayer, O God, whose only begotten Son, by his life, death, and resurrection, has purchased for us the rewards of eternal life, you'll find that that prayer actually is the oration from the Mass of the Holy Rosary. Um, but also the, the prayers that we, that we have in the Mass, in the Mass, for example, with regard to Corpus Christi, you'll find that the orations there are used at benediction and so on. Like the hymns of St. Thomas Aquinas from Corpus Christi are, are sung in benediction. So um, these orations of the church go back many centuries, and they are kind of canonized by the church in the sense that she uses them in her sacred liturgy to express her faith. I can't really give you the date and uh, the place and, the, and the, the name of the people, but I can tell you that it is very very old, hundreds of years old, um, and has been used by the church to express her faith all this time. 
Again. So I do find it a good question, though, and I'm going to investigate to the extent that I can. <laughs> Sounds good. And if any of our viewers know the answer to that question, I'd appreciate it if they call us. Send us an email, yep. All right, Father, then now we have uh, a request for suggestions on how to address the situation of older children, teenagers and up, not receiving Holy Communion frequently. Mm -hmm. It is a problem, isn't it? Right. Um, but it is, it is unfortunate for a parent who is really concerned about the souls of his or her children to see them at some point in life, perhaps teenage years, cease going to communion. Perhaps it becomes infrequent at first, less and less frequent, and then stops altogether. But the parent doesn't want to do anyway, no matter what. The parent does not want to pressure the child into going to receive communion if the child should not. If the child... Um, there are any number of reasons why a person would not go to receive. They broke the fast, okay? They don't feel well. You know, people who don't feel well or are sick to their stomach could not, should not go receive Holy Communion. People who are in a state of mortal sin should not go to receive Holy Communion because that would be sacrilegious. People who have lost their faith, of course, obviously, they, if they don't believe, they should not go to receive and profess something that is not true to them, that they believe is not true, just to appease their parents or put on a good show of it. Um, there are any number of reasons. Obviously, if a child is sick, the parent should not be pressuring him to go to receive. Uh, if a child has broken the fast, the parent should not be pressuring the child to go to receive. If the child is in the state of mortal sin, the parent certainly does not want to pressure the child to receive. <clears throat> but the parent uh, bringing the child up on charges and confronting the child is bringing pressure. If saying, uh, you know, Johnny, I noticed you're not receiving Holy Communion, what's wrong? I mean, that, that is what a parent wants to do, wants to kind of confront the issue, but the parent certainly doesn't want to um, signal the child, I'd better go up to receive no matter what, because if I don't, mom and dad are watching me, and uh, I'm being forced to do this. Um, now, I, I tell the, not just the youngsters, but I tell people in general at the church, if they, if they feel that uh, there is some pressure on them for whatever reason to receive, because they're being observed and people are remarking for some reason or whatever reason, um, <clears throat> that they're not receiving, that they can come to the rail and when the priest comes to them, just momentarily put their finger to their lips just to signal the priest they're not receiving. The priest can bless them with the host and move on to the next person. Okay, far better than that than that than receiving sacrilegiously. You know? um, but uh, as far as a parent goes, a parent has to handle that very deftly with a child, because as I say, the, the parent doesn't want in any way to induce pressure on the child to receive when he really should not. So, um, what can the parent do? Well, the parent can, well, obviously pray for the child. Obviously, that's, that's, that's the, the number one, you know, uh, step that the parent should take. Praying for the child, but also praying for himself for guidance to instruct the child and help the child to get over whatever the problem is, to get through it, whatever it is. The parent should actually 
begin to <clears throat> review also in his own mind, especially if he's dealing with a teenager, the parent should be asking himself, is there something in our home that is an occasion of sin for my child? The internet, uh, it's horrible. Parents have no idea. There are parents who are going to be really shocked by their judgment when they appear before our Lord and they find out what has been going on behind their backs with the internet in their homes. They will be absolutely shocked to find out. Best parents, best kids, right? But the parents did not exercise sufficient oversight and I don't even know how, how to do that, how they can do that, unless they have to be really on top of it. But it's so easy to defeat whatever, you know. <clears throat> parents can lay down the law. You can only use that when I'm here or whatever. I'm sorry, lead us not into temptation. They put that in there. The temptation is there. They're extremely naive, criminally naive, I'd say, if they think they can just get away with that and expect that all the kids are just going to follow it automatically. You know, no problem. Once they get bitten by the venom of that thing, though, once that venom enters them, one experience, they're drawn to it. They are. They're drawn to it. And um, it's like they, they lose all sense of um, obedience. They don't even think of it as disobedience to go and do that anymore. Uh, to go on when they're not supposed to, you know. <clears throat> it's like that doesn't even register with them. And uh, they're really uh, corrupting their own children's souls. So when a parent sees a, a youngster not receiving, the parent <clears throat> should immediately start thinking, okay, is there something in my child's life that is an occasion of sin for my child? Is it a friend he's going with? Is it the music he's watching? All right? Is it maybe some movies or videos, whether in the, in the movie theater, that they're kind of archaic now, I guess, or on the internet, in my own home, or in, in, in the home of a friend where the, he might go and spend time? I mean, what is the influence now? What are the influences in my child's life? The parents should think about all of this ahead of time before it becomes a problem, as far as he can. But if you see there, it sees there is a problem, and it's, it's probably a moral problem, that the child is uh, not receiving, possibly even making excuses. Oh, I, I ate by accident for the fifth Sunday in a row, you know, or I don't feel well whenever the time comes for Holy Communion. The parent begins to realize, you know, there's something going on here. And it probably is a moral problem. It, it might well involve mortal sin. <clears throat> well, when the parent gets to that point, don't, you know, confront the child. Why aren't you receiving communion? You should be receiving communion. Because then the parent could be, you know, responsible for the sacrilegious the action of the child. Not helping the child in any way, because if the child begins receiving our Lord sacrilegiously, that's going to do da terrible damage to the child's uh, interior life. The, ch the parent might also be the type saying, get us, get, get thee through the door of the confessional and, and get in there and confess your sins, and the child is making sacrilegious confessions, and hiding the fact that they're receiving sacrilegious communions. Parents can do this to the children without, you know, because they're, they're not careful enough. There, but then, but the, the lack of care begins in in the question of what what corrupting influences are are going to be active in the child's life to begin with. <clears throat> so uh, this is the way they kind of compensate for the lack of care, I guess. Um, <clears throat> so if they if their child is at that point, they've they've looked around and seen if there's something that they're doing in their home. They're having these magazines come into their home. They're having these newspapers come out with the advertisements. 
for the swimwear for summer or lingerie or whatever else they've got coming into their home. I mean, the children are curious. They, they look at these things. They discover these things. And uh, may, as I say, they, they have a certain allure for them. Uh, first curiosity, and, and it, it goes from there. You know, the poison gets in. And uh, once, it, once, once the poison gets into the mind with these images and so on, these ideas, then they, they want to take over the imagination, and then they go into the heart, and then it becomes a way of life. You know, they, they begin acting upon these things. Parents have to be ex extremely careful today, perhaps more careful than parents have ever been before, with the media the way it is, as to what messages, what visions are entering their child's uh, imagination. Uh, once parents do that, I say, pray for the child, definitely. Set a good example, and that's another question the parents should ask. I mean, are there <clears throat> older members of the family, like dad, not going to communion frequently? Mom, not going to communion frequently. Older brothers, older sisters, not going to communion frequently. What influence is that having on the child? What example is that setting for the child? Dad has an enormously powerful role to play in this, um, especially for the boys. If they see that Dad doesn't go to communion, then the, 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 guy, the boys figure, well, I'm a guy like Dad, and Dad obviously doesn't put any importance on this, so you know I shouldn't either, right? This is my being more like dad, so dad stays in the pew, I'm going to stay in the pew too. Uh, there's there's a, a horrible responsibility that fathers have to be in the state of grace to set the, the example for their children. And if they're not, heaven help them. Um, <clears throat> after that, they should talk to the priest and they should say, is there a way I can approach this with my son you know, or my daughter? <laughs> is there a way, way I can approach them about this very question <clears throat> without... Um, let's say, putting them on the spot and making them feel pressure. There are ways that parents can talk to their children about how wonderful it is to receive our Lord and Holy Communion. You know? Not saying, oh, those who don't receive are going straight to hell, they're, they're horrible people, you know, and we shun them. I mean, they don't have to get into that aspect of it, you know, to make the point. But they should really be, to encourage the children to receive, uh, they necessarily have to encourage them to be in the state of grace, right, and prepared to receive, but they have to um, convey to their children a love of receiving our Lord and Holy Communion, and a desire, a longing to receive Him. And parents can talk about how wonderful it is that, that God would come to them in this way, that our Lord would come to the communion rail to be united with Him, and how important it is to Him. All the positive messages that the children need to hear without being confronted with their failure to be there at the communion rail. Um, you know, also, uh, even books, children give, uh, give gifts to their parents and to each other, but the, the children also receive gifts, and they, they can receive gifts from their parents for any reason or no reason at all. And for a, a, a parent to give a gift to, to a child about the, the wonders of the Mass, of uh, St. Uh, uh, Leonard of Port Maurice, as a, as a spiritual reading book, um, under what pretext? Is it a birthday? Is it the uh, um, anniversary of their baptism? Did they do well on a test? Um, <clears throat> they, are they giving little books to all the kids, you know, so as not to single the child out? Whatever they have to do, you know, they, they start thinking about these things. With the help of the Holy Ghost guiding them, they'll know how to handle these things. 
in such a way to encourage that child to think about the state of his soul, the, to develop in the child a real intense longing to receive our Lord in Holy Communion, <clears throat> and maybe even show an openness to the child coming to the parent and talking about this. This is what the parent really wants. Um, the parent really wants the child to come and, and confide in him or her, you know. And so, uh, again, I mean, if the parent confronts the child in kind of a testy fashion, says, why aren't you coming to communion? That is not going to encourage the child to come and talk, hopefully, about it. Uh, so the parent has to, um, you know, have conveyed to the child already over the years the benefit of coming and talking to mom or dad about this. And mom and dad understand, and they will be very helpful. Okay? And uh, they will not be condemning uh, the child, especially if the child has shown that amount of humility and courage to come and confide in mom and dad, because it's very hard for them to do, mm -hmm. uh, to admit certain things, because they're so ashamed of them. Yep. So all of those things are important. They all go into the a answering that question. And uh, it's not one of those things where I can say, well, do this, then do that, then do that, then do this, and say exactly these words in this way, and everything will turn out right. <clears throat> uh, above all, I'll leave it at this, they need to have a, a plan of action, <clears throat> which sometimes is a different chain between action and inaction. They know what to do what not to do, God will have to inspire them. They have to go to our, our Lord and our Blessed Mother with her motherly heart and ask, how can I proceed? Above all, make sure I do not do the wrong thing because that can do a lot of damage. So I avoid making the situation worse. What can I do to make it better? Mm -hmm. well, that's rather rather terrifying the amount of responsibility that, that parents have. But. Well, it, it is. It certainly is. They're their parents and they're in that situation. And they are the ones really who need to deal with that. For them. Their child needs them Definitely. Uh, to help them yep. deal with that. Yep. Well, I think you gave some great, great practical advice there. So, so thank you for that, Father. We have one final question here that I'd like to get to, Father, about cremation. Mm -hmm. And uh, they ask if you could talk about the effects of, of cremation and perhaps what the church teaches on this matter. Well, a cremation, the reducing to ashes of a human body, you know, a corpse, has <clears throat> uh, been widely practiced by pagans for centuries and centuries, for millennia, okay? Which is why the church condemns it. Uh, it is a pagan practice. It has all the airs of paganism about it. Um, and uh, not only that, it, it, it shows a certain disrespect for the human body. The church teaches us that the human body is an integral part of the human, the, the human, human person. I mean, the, the soul and the body are designed by God to be together. He made us corporal, corporeal beings. And to, to treat the body as though it's just uh, like the trash, you take the incinerator, drop it down the incinerator, and your trash gets burned up. <laughs> and then you use it like fertilizer, you know, spreading it on the ground or whatever. <clears throat> this is a grave abuse of the corpse, and it shows terrific disrespect for the body which united the soul and state of grace is the temple of the Holy Ghost. This is St. Paul calls it the, the temple of the Holy Ghost. 
Um, it also has been used by the enemies of the church to uh, basically undermine the whole idea of the resurrection. So um, the church says no. Now the, now, the modern church has said, okay, you know, you want to. Right? And um, they have certain rules about it, whether they follow them or not, I, who knows. But um, the fact is that uh, the modern church basically has thrown open the floodgates to this and just let people uh, get cremated, the Catholics are cremated. But if you were to go back to the traditional practice, of the church and the traditional canon law of the church, the church would say that if a Catholic determines to be cremated, they cannot be buried as a Catholic. They can't be buried in a Catholic cemetery. They can't have a Catholic funeral mass, and they can't have the Catholic funeral prayers. Um, the grave cannot be blessed. I mean, it's just that they're being buried as a non-Catholic. And furthermore, if, if any member of the family agrees to um, take care of the funeral arrangements and agrees to have someone cremated, that they themselves are subject to very great penalties for that. They'd be subject to, to very serious censures for even agreeing at the request of a relative to have a cremation. You know? They would have to uh, refuse to have a cremation altogether, or they would have to refuse to be the one responsible for taking care of the funerary rites. Period. Church would no, no, uh, give no quarter on that. Um, now, there are times, in times of plague and so on, when the church has, has recognized, okay, it is clear here this is not a matter of conceding to paganism here. This is a matter of public uh, you know, safety and public health. Yeah, there are some extreme circumstances like that, but they have to be pretty extreme for the church to give way on this. <clears throat> um, so... Um, but it is condemned by the church. Now, people go into it, go in for now, they, they have all kinds of excuses. They say, well, the idea of my body in the grave and, you know, slowly decaying, it just gives me the creeps, so I'd just rather get it over with and be reduced to ashes. Well, I'm sorry. They just have to overcome that uh, sensitivity. They're not going to really care about it at that time in terms of the decomposition of the body. Whether it happens instantaneously or not, um, in the eyes of God, I mean, the ultimate result is going to be the same. The fact that we make it happen, we force it to happen, that we incinerate the body, is is the the, the practice of paganism, and the disres- that's where the disrespect comes in. Um, and we do this with the bodies of our loved ones, and even our own. I mean, that is that is gross disrespect. Others say, "Well, I don't want to take up too much space because that's encumbering Mother Earth and so on." Okay, forget that right there. Uh, enough said. And then others say, well, it's, it's less expensive that way, and you don't have to worry a casket. You know, that way you can just you can just basically get me into a shoebox or a, um, you know, a, 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 a trophy from the local trophy shop or a vase, you know, an urn, what they call an urn, you know. Um, and it makes it so much easier. Well, you know, people have been burying their dogs and cats kind of that way for a while. And the whole episode, the whole thrust now is to reduce human life to nothing more than that. Yeah. Evolution has taken it. The idea of, of, of evolutionism has taken the toll that we're nothing but glorified apes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I mean, people could even use that as, as a, as a kind of devolution where we, the way we act, I mean, we act in a way that shame, apes would never act. Yeah. They would never do to each other what human beings do to each other. Yeah. Um, but all of the entire thrust of, of modern 
decivilization is toward um, the absolute de degradation of human life. And um, uh, cremation is all part of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. should have nothing to do with it. And, and speaking of the new church's position on this matter, I actually recently here in Cincinnati saw an advertisement for a Catholic cremation service. Well, I mean, a lot of these cemeteries are owned by dioceses, or you know, yeah. they're owned by religious entities, Catholic religious entities, and they all they're all open to it. Yeah. Yeah, Catholic creation service. Yeah. What does that tell you? It tells you what the modernists have done and how horrible it is. Uh, that these poor people out there are following blindly following this and thinking this is Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that about wraps up for tonight, Father. I think we've answered just about I mean, these people are, well, they want to incinerate the faith is what they want to do. Well, That's what they really want to do. They just want to take the corpses of the Catholics and run them into the, into the uh, incinerator and, and fry them. <laughs> they want to do that to the faith. You know? mm -hmm. And, uh, and like the Masons, they want to re they want to do that to our Lord. They want to rebury him and, and 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 guard that tomb so there's no escape from that. That's what they're trying to do to the church right now. A very uh, wise man, I think, uh, made the observation that the previous Novus Ordo Pontus had the intention of destroying the faith in the hearts of the people, <clears throat> but this one, Francis, has as his objective destroying the church itself. And you know, I think he spoke correctly. <clears throat> so if, if, if he had a crematory, I'm sure that's exactly where, <clears throat> where he would put the faith right now, if he could. But uh, by the grace of God, he won't succeed. Wow, that's a rather bleak note to end on, Father. <laughs> I know, but we should talk about our blessed mother, right? <laughs> okay, we and can And her appearances of Adam, that, that in the end, yeah. her immaculate heart will triumph. Yeah. And uh, that's why I say, Tom, that this is Our Lady's battle. That what we're dealing with right now, and her call for the rosary and devotion to her Immaculate Heart, and she says that this has been committed to her by God Himself. This is this is a mission that God has given to her. This is Our Lady's battle from beginning to end. It's Our Lady's battle. It has to be Our Lady's battle because otherwise, how could it possibly be her victory? And when she says, "In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph." It can only be her triumph if it is her battle, right. and she is victorious. So God wants it done this way. You know, He has decided that it is she who is going to uh, be the, the leader in this great battle. But Tom, of course, how could we think otherwise? How could anybody calls himself who calls himself a Christian not understand that that is the case? Because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the promise that God made was when he promised the Redeemer with the words to Lucifer, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Right? He said between her offspring and your offspring. But the enmity that he spoke of is between the woman and Satan. Okay? So no wonder it's her battle now, because that's what he prophesied at the very beginning, that it was going to be. She would be his enemy, and uh, the victory will be hers. We know that. In the end, her immaculate heart will triumph. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow.
that's a little better note than <laughs> Well, I'd like to think so. Okay. It's well, true, too. It's, it's very true. <laughs> that's the best part. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here tonight, Father. Thanks for answering all these questions, and thanks, thanks for doing doing the, the retreats as well. Well, absolutely, Tom. That's, that's very, very great help. Very well. Thanks for being there at the retreat. No problem. And by the way, you know, we never mentioned on the program about the men's retreat and the ladies' retreat. Yeah, I was going to do that. So we're going... Oh, good. Okay, I'll, I'll let you do the, uh, the commercial. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say to, to any of our viewers that, that Father does... Uh, offer the those yearly retreats here in the uh, Cincinnati area at our uh, at our campgrounds and retreat center um, here in Cincinnati. So by all means, if any of our viewers are interested in that, they can definitely contact us, and we'll get them the appropriate information uh, to to do that and attend those. But that about wraps it up for tonight. So thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.